This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to your final helping of Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. But what's been going on this week? Well, one thing I picked out is the date that's been announced for the premiere of season three of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. It's going to be starting on iPlayer on the 23rd of September. Remember that date. Plus, the producers have announced a few more guest judges. These include Little Mix's Leanne Pinnock, Emma Bunton and Alicia Dixon. I absolutely loved All Star 6, which has just finished. I'm not going to say anything else in case you've not got to the end of it. But I can't wait for Drag Race UK Season 3. And in other good news, Britney Spears' dad has formally started proceedings to end her conservatorship. I've no idea what has gone on there, but the thing that sticks in my mind is that she has said she doesn't want to be in this conservatorship and it's abusive. She's wanted it to end for a long time. So I think we've got to greet this as brilliant news. And who knows, it might even mean that she goes back to performing. Wouldn't that be something? Speaking of performances, I went to see Frozen, the stage musical adaptation of the hit Disney film in the West End this week. It is lavish and spectacular, and it's got some great star turns in it. The two sisters are brilliant. And I was just thrilled, to be honest, to be back in a packed theatre. At one point, I actually tore my eyes off the stage and in the middle of proceedings, looked around the auditorium just checking out all those people watching and I couldn't stop beaming it was brilliant other than that other than Frozen the big news from us is that this current run of Virgin Radio Pride is coming to its scheduled end so this is our last show we're really sad to be going and more on that later but in the meantime let's get on with it as usual everyone's welcome to get involved if you want to contact us on social media we're on at virgin radio uk and i am on at matt Kane writer or you can email us on pride at virgin go on it's your last chance to send an email and however you contact us please do get stuck in for this one last time now my guests on today's show are first of all rosie wilby she is a comedian an author and a podcast host she's probably best known for her podcast the breakup monologues which comes recommended by total the observer metro and time out. She also produced and presented the iconic Radio Diva show on Resonance FM. Just this week, I had a very special reunion show right here on Virgin Radio Pride. And finally, her first book, Is Monogamy Dead?, was longlisted for the, for the Polari First Book Prize in 2018. Her second book, also called The Breakup Monologues, after the podcast, was released earlier this year, and it's brilliant. Rosie and I are going to be joined by Tim MacArthur. He is an all-round entertainer who, for the last 25 years, has worked as an actor, a cabaret performer, a presenter, dancer, comedian and director. 
He's been on theatrical journeys to New York, Spain and Cockermouth. He's also appeared on stage as his alter ego, Sister Mary MacArthur from St. Peter's of the Sisters of the Third Removed in Soho. Currently, he programmes the Cabaret Lounge at Above the Stag, London's foremost queer theatre. And I'm sure he's going to be telling us about that later. But before then, here's what we're going to be discussing. Firstly, is the LGBTQ plus community less affected by class divisions than mainstream society? Secondly, as we emerge from the pandemic, do LGBTQ plus media outlets need to evolve in order to better serve our community? Thirdly, humour may be one of the most effective weapons queer people have to bring about social change, but if used wrongly, can it damage our community? And finally, let's talk about the spirit of Virgin Radio Pride and how to keep it alive after the station has come to an end. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Rosie Wilby and Tim MacArthur. How are you guys today? Very well, thank you. Very well. My hips don't lie. I love that song. (laughs) (laughs) How are your hips, Rosie? Oh, my hips, they're a bit tired. I've, I've been very busy walking walking the dog just now. And also I've been launching my book in Australia, which is why um, I've been quite busy and I haven't been able to join you live in the studio. I'm on a Zoom. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's all right. We're going to be finding out a bit later more about that Australian book launch. Sure. It sounds very exciting. And I'll be talking to Tim. But in the meantime, we're going to get straight on with our debates. We're going to dive mm. straight into the first topic. We are going to be talking about social class. So, British society is famous for its supposedly rigid distinctions between social classes. It's been notorious throughout much of history for its class snobbery. But the LGBTQ plus community has a rich history of love crossing class lines. The most famous example of this is a fictional one, E.M. Forster's novel, Morris. This was made into a major film starring Hugh Grant and Rupert Graves, but it was inspired by several stories from real life. This kind of thing did happen a lot. So the question is today, Is the queer community any less affected by class divisions than mainstream society? Tim, let's start with you. Which social class would you say that you're from? Well, I'm from the northeast of England, so a really small town, which was, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, it was very sort of, I would say, very working class, quite a poor area, actually. And actually, that's the region that in the, the last general election has all gone blue now, which has been completely amazing because... You know, it was like coal never, mining. Yeah. Never. My, my grandparents would be like absolutely spinning in their graves if they knew what happened now. And probably my parents as well. So it's it's a really interesting debate, isn't it? Because I think as, as a community, as a queer community, we try and really sort of make sure that we are very open to each other and all what we are and all the labels and everything. But I think within that, I think there is still a class system and I think it goes back to that pink pound I mean many many years ago I used to work for a company called Jake which was Ivan Massow's company oh yeah I don't know if that's when we first met and that was basically aimed at a uh, a meeting every Wednesday for gentlemen of a certain class certain (laughs) style 
most of them worked in the city some weren't out at work and it was very much orientated around the the sort of people who had their own businesses high-flying lawyers yeah but can i just say actually just sorry to interrupt and rosie i'm going to come to you in a bit i did go to one or two jake events but not because i was that kind of person i wasn't a high-flying lawyer and i certainly didn't work in the city but i remember the organizers saying people who do work in the city they want other um, maybe more interesting or creative people there in the mix. True, absolutely. And, and I was one of those organisers who said that and that was our main thing to try and attract, you know, the, the a, a diverse wealth, you know, sense of wealth with, yeah. the, with the, the guys that used to come. But I still, there was still an element of, we tried really hard to integrate those, those you know, different sorts of people, sorts of class in the gays. And it, it, it sometimes worked, but I would say probably about 20% of the people weren't there weren't high-flying or wealthy or, you know, I mean, I was just an out-of-work actor who was organising the entertainment, so I was poor, you know, all my life I've been poor. I sound like a lyric from The Little Shop of Horrors there. Um, so I, I think it is, a, and if you look now, I think, at where we are, and I think especially after the pandemic, you know, I think it's that's affected not not just obviously the queer community, but the straight world as well. But I think there's going to be a real shift in how we come back and how we sort of maybe try and I don't want to say level up because I'm not a Tory yeah. uh, politician. But do you know what I mean? To just cross that border and see how we can build those bridges now, because I think a lot of people don't generally now don't have a lot of money. They've lost their jobs, you know, and, and lots of things are not reopening, especially in. Okay, right. So, um, so Rosie, Tim thinks the class distinctions are more pronounced post the pandemic. But let's go back to the beginning with you. Which social class would you say would you identify as being from? Well, um, I grew up in a town in Lancashire called Ormskirk, which is not that far from where you grew up in Bolton, Matt. Absolutely. And I, I always tell people it's a bit near Liverpool. It's a bit like Liverpool if you take away everything. Because <laughs> I, I didn't, I wasn't that happy in Ormskirk. You know, there weren't many gay people, and and it. Well, as you know, the nineteen eighties were not the best decade to be growing up gay and coming out. Um, so. Yeah, it was, I suppose, at the school that I went to, I was mixing with a bunch of fairly middle class, fairly affluent friends. Um, I would say I was middle class, but I was at the sort of more modest and lower end of that. You know, we we had a sort of modest house, a sort of semi-detached kind of um, kind of semi-bungalow Um and, um, you know, other friends had big houses and fathers who were doctors and dentists and, and vets. And so does this know, mean does this mean you went to a posh school? No, it, it, well, it was it wasn't a private school, but it was um, it was a little bit stuffy because there were two schools in our town in Ormskirk. And there was one that still called itself Ormskirk Grammar School, even though it was a comprehensive. It was no longer a grammar school, but it held on to some sort of stuffy notions right. of being superior to the other school. <laughs> and, you know, if you went out with boys from the other school, it was like, oh, he's from the other school. He must be a bit rough, you know. Um, <laughs> I love so... the fact that it was being fetishised a bit yeah. of rough, even <laughs> at that age. Tim's face is lit up. Right. Um, so, so yeah. So, so when I did have boyfriends, they were always from the <laughs> other school. Um, but yeah. So I was middle class and and surrounded by 
you know, relatively comfortably off people, I suppose. But I kind of kind of rejected this sort of notion that I I was a bright girl and I could be okay if I studied hard and, you know, became a doctor or or something. Um, and, you know, went into the arts and <laughs> got a shock when I realised there's no money there. Um, and so I have, you know, in a way, lived in a completely different class in my adult life than the one I grew up Ooh, in. Oh, that's interesting. Because I've really, I've really struggled. I have been crying in the supermarket, particularly when I've been up in Edinburgh during the Fringe and I've paid out thousands of pounds, all of my savings to stay in a horrible little flat and realised I can't afford to buy my food that day. I can't afford to eat. Um, you know, I mean, look, I, I, I've always had backups. You know, I could call my dad if I really needed to. But I've definitely had tough times, and money has been a traumatic thing because you don't earn a lot in the creative arts. Right. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've kind of almost moved down in class, but now I'm with a, <laughs> now I'm with a partner who you know, has has an okay job and stuff. So we're okay. But certainly the pandemic has been hard. But I do think within our queer community, those divisions are there, even though there's an argument that we're all in this together. And Mm. particularly in the 1980s, we were all fighting homophobia together. I think there's, you know, there's definitely a privilege network and a sort of hierarchy All right. Well, that tallies with what Tim said. So in terms of my story, so I grew up in Bolton, as Rosie says. Um, My mum and dad were both from council estates, but my dad went to university, first one in his family to go to university, went to a grammar school, became a teacher. So possibly um, his children are middle class Mm. or in in a transitional kind of generation. But we very much had a working class cultural upbringing and the interesting thing for me because I went to a comprehensive and then went to Cambridge where there were lots of children from public schools Mm -hmm. and very wealthy backgrounds I thought social class has had no impact on my life when I worked at Channel 4 News get this my producer said his granddad used to have footmen and I thought, oh, look at us working. I thought, look at us working together. Obviously, social class isn't as big a thing as people said. And the gay thing was such an obstacle in my life to get over in terms of society's attitudes to me. I thought social class doesn't matter so much, but it's only as I've got older when I've picked up on um, the way that people often put you in your place and where are you from and mm. what's that accent constantly having to remind you of it. And um, I've realised it is more of a thing than I thought. But at the same time, I know you two have both said those distinctions are there in every community. I think they are less than elsewhere. And I am fascinated by these stories of in the past, like we talked about Maurice, um, in, which was written in the Edwardian times, in those days, social class distinction was everything. Mm. And you had the Lord of the Manor or whatever he was and the gardener having an affair. And that was quite common. And, um, you know, we, we were so outside the law as queer people that it kind of social class became less important. Do you know what I mean, Tim? Do you mm. not find that interesting? Yeah, I do. I, and it's really interesting you mentioned Morris, actually, because I directed a production of Morris about 10 years ago. And we really looked at all the different classes within, within, the, within the play and the, and the story of it, you know, and Morris with his relationship with Scudder and all that sort of thing. But um, I, I do think that 
But do you think it's as well that time because obviously homosexuality was illegal or really wasn't talked about, therefore, so it wasn't really maybe you know because it doesn't matter whether you're you've got millions and millions in the in the bank. We were all outlaws. Or, yeah, we were all outlaws. Do you know what I mean? And wherever we they hid, we hid. You know, and all those secret clubs that used to happen and secret meetings. You know, but yeah, I I I I. I still think we are in a class system within the community and you and it's that sense yeah. you know like I you know I love I love going out in Soho and I was out last night you know and I went around all the bars and it's really fascinating because there's you know there's not a lot of tourists in town but there is a difference in when you look at you know gay men on the community as well and what they wear how what how they present themselves what what their image is you know it's all it's all tied in i think in 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 class as well and do they wear a nice pair of trousers from you know a nice tailor shop on german street or do they go to a, a shop on oxford street or you know the pound shop to wear a pair of knickers or something i don't know okay right we're gonna have a music break in a second i just want to ask rosie so if you agree with this um do you think it's a consequence of us no longer being outside the law and isn't it brilliant that we have equal rights and higher levels of acceptance but does this mean that we're not bound together by a stronger yeah. connection as we used to do when we were hiding away from everyone else in those underground bars what do you think rosie I absolutely agree. Although I also think there's a distinction between what it's been like for gay men and lesbians. I do think there's yeah. a rich history of kind of the very arty, bohemian, relatively affluent queer women having sexually fluid relationships, having husbands and then having lesbian affairs on the side, you know, you sort of Virginia Woolf and so on. So I do think that there may be some differences there in how women have been able to have relationships and had access to that. And and also there being queer spaces available for women that hasn't historically been as available as it has for gay men. So I do think there has been more of a class divide for women because, you know, homophobia has always been compounded by sexism as well and, and living mm. in a patriarchal society. So I do think it's been perhaps slightly different. And I think you're right that as we've come out of the pandemic and as we are more accepted in society, it's sort of the, if you like, the good gay, the white, you know, sort of heteronormative gay man, if you like, who who gets kind of accepted more than everybody else. And perhaps that leaves everybody else even feeling more outside. So, Tim, have you ever had a relationship with someone who was from a very different socioeconomic background? Yes, my current partner, actually. Oh, interesting. Tell us uh, about that experience. So my current partner went to Oxford. Um, I met him, we've been together about 13 years, and we are, he calls me his northern rough. Ooh. And I call him my posh <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, and our, our, you know, our, our class, you know, where we, our education, he went to private school, you know, Winchester. I actually went in Oh my God, so you're properly. So I'm properly. So, but it's that interesting thing, you know, we, we mentioned earlier about the class system. And I think between you and Rosie, I think I'm lower class than both of you because I was uh, brought up on a council estate and we were the first council house by my parents was the when Thatcher said people could buy their council houses. We were the first people on the estate to buy our council house. So that took us into a different level compared yeah. with all our neighbours. So, Except they say that social class isn't just about wealth that you've got available. It's a, it's a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah, no. They used to say things like accent, but... Um, 
I think that's it's all a yeah. bit blurred now, isn't it? But do you think so? Talking about your relationship um, with your posh stuff, posh stuff. Do you think the differences <laughs> between you have been any easier to negotiate because of your shared outsider status as gay men, or would it have been just the same if you were straight? I think the perception of money is an interesting thing, and the the, the value of money. Because, you know, like um, sometimes money is maybe not an issue for him sometimes where I, you know, have always been, you know, struggling for money, as Rosie mentioned, you know, standing in that supermarket. Do I buy a potato or do I buy soap weekly? Oh, we've, I've totally do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I've totally. <laughs> where that know. sort of thing doesn't happen. And also our dialect is very interesting. The words we use, especially when we swear, you know, I will swear like a troop and he will do, he will, well, not, not swear, but he'll say some hilarious things like, oh, jolly hell and things like that <laughs> oh he really is posh yeah stuff. he's really posh stuff but if you you know and if you see saw him you wouldn't think necessarily that you know he's the most beautiful man and very kind and very loving um but you know doesn't really sort of wear posh clothes you know i love it that we're all so anti-posh we have to say he's posh but, but he's very beautiful and kind and no, loving but, it, but i mean but he comes from a very you know yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're they're i think they're comfortable but it's not really... Wealthy people always say they're comfortable. Yeah. He's basically got a lot of money. If he went to Winchester, Rosie, have you <laughs> ever had a relationship across class lines? Um, I'm ashamed to say not really. Um, I've definitely had relationships along cultural lines and, and people from different religions and different countries and communities. However, um, yeah, I seem to have largely had relationships with people who are also middle class. And it just seems to be the way it goes sometimes. And the people you meet, the networks, you meet the friends, you meet the friends yeah. who introduce you to other friends. And it just seems to be who you meet. But that said, um, my girlfriend and I now have very differing views to money because she sort of has enough i mean she's certainly not a millionaire by any means but you know she's been able to buy a nice house in bromley and we we have a lot of arguments about money because i still feel very protective of any money that i earn because it has been such a precious commodity but you know she wants us to go out and and have nice dinners and do nice things and be able to get a new kitchen and <laughs> and so it, it's it's difficult sometimes so the tension because i feel well why are we why are we spending this money and i get it's kind of this anxiety about it so it's interesting that you say most of your relationships have been along you know, with the, within the same social class group, because um, I've never dated a guy. Well, I've dated guys. I've never had a relationship with a guy who's posh. I just haven't. And I've dated them, and I've thought one guy in particular. No, actually, a couple. And I've thought, um, oof, I just can't imagine taking them back to Bolton, <laughs> which kind of makes me think um, it is still an issue. Do you know oh, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. That it is, um, but what's interesting to me is that um, we're all talking about across class lines, but we're all, so Rosie mentioned religion and culture. So my um, fiance, my man, is South African Jewish. And um, I was brought up North of England Catholic. So very different. And I just wonder whether, I've noticed a lot of gay people, lesbians, um, have more international friendship groups. And, um, you know, you're actually what you've just said, Rosie, is 
proving is working against what I'm about to say, but I've noticed like different age ranges, different social classes. I think even though we're not now outlaws, we still have um, maybe a less pronounced outsider status mm. that means we share a point of difference that's still quite significant. And this can bind us together and just kind of smooth out other differences. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I think so. I find, I, I think the gay friendship thing is really interesting as well, because I know that I've, over the past couple of years, I've become friendly with much more younger gay guys, which is, and they all call me mummy, which is hilarious. Oh, I get antsy uh, sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, they all go, love your mummy. And I'm like, all right, bye. <laughs> But um, I think it's, it's that interesting thing, isn't it? And they're all from different sort of uh, backgrounds and, you know, but I think it's really healthy as as queer people to have, you know, relationships and friendships with um, a wide range of ages and cultures. And I don't, you know, we're all from the North, all three of us from the North. And it's that sense, I think, as well, that when you're in, you know, when we've, we've all sort of experienced our grown up years of being stuck up to North, as I always used to say, and I couldn't wait to get to London because I hated being in the north i hated what it meant how it made me feel not being accepted is that um, still past tense or is i mean actually you're talking about the north i mean where you're from in the northeast there's some big differences to where i'm from in yeah completely the northwest, particularly actually in one word manchester yeah um which kind of changes a lot but um do you still feel like that or i it's really interesting because i i've lost my mum about five years ago and my stepfather about 18 months before that and it's that as the the five years have gone on now, I feel very little connection with that area now because there's no. I mean, I've got friends and I've got you know an auntie and an uncle up there that I speak to, but there's no there's no real desire now to to visit there. I mean, the, all my family are buried there, and you know, I personally, you know, if they've been cremated, it would be more easy because I feel bad that I can't go and visit the grave. But then at the same time, they're not really there; they're in my heart anyway. Yeah, do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, but there's it's it, there's no. I don't have that desire to go there anymore which is really interesting and especially even now it's changed its political landscape as well which is an, a new a new thing which is also feels very strange to me as well because of you know my growing up I sort of went through section 28 which really affected me mm -hmm. mentally because I came out so young so there's this sort of really as I'm getting older, it, it's the desire to visit there is going is less and less. And how about you, Rosie, as a fellow northerner, but near closer to where I'm from than Tim? Because um, those northern towns and cities are very much their identity culturally is working class. They are working industrial revolution towns. That's how they got built up. That's part of how mm. they came to be. Um, do you think so? You know, I stepped away. I have had a difficult relationship with my hometown. I had to get out to become who I wanted to be. But I have had a reconciliation with it. I've written a whole book about and it. And it's very good. I've read it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you. But um, how much of that is about is about social class, do you think? It's not about geography, is it? It's Surely it's a cultural thing. I mean, some working class backgrounds can be quite macho. Yeah, it's. I think it's really interesting, and like you say, those those cities had sort of working class um, history. Um, and Liverpool was the city where I came out and went to my first lesbian bars. And what was particularly interesting about about queer spaces was that they tended to be in the sort of in inverted commas rougher parts of town, slightly mm. down dark alleyways. And all of the lesbian bars that I used to go to in Liverpool, and then I spent a little bit of time in the northeast in Newcastle, 
doing my first ever job at, actually at the University of Sunderland, but going out to queer places in Newcastle. And all of those queer spaces for lesbians and for women, queer women, bi women, were all places where you had to walk through a room of men, straight men, I, I think, quite skinheady looking men who were a bit tough and rough, you know, playing pool or with kind of, you know, bulldogs. And <laughs> it was weird. But you always had to go through these rough men to be able to go to the back room. It was like the lesbian back room. Yeah. <laughs> and and it was it was quite scary at times, you know, particularly for me, this girl who'd sort of, you know, grown up in a relatively middle-class house and and with middle-class friends at school and it was it was definitely a bit of a um a culture shock in a way but it did open my eyes and i think it it makes you you know start to accept people who are different and it does mm. kind of make you see that you know these kind of aspirational ideas like my stuffy school head <laughs> yeah. about calling itself a grammar school are a bit a bit daft and you just start to get to know real people but yes like tim i desperately wanted to escape to london where i felt i would just meet more queer people and more people that i could talk to about life and politics and the world so and actually that was about concentration of queer people in one place it wasn't actually about yeah, the, I think the thing I heard about Bolton was there weren't any gays there. It wasn't, at, well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's a really complicated subject, isn't mm. it? You can never, the thing is, if you do any kind of scientific experiment, you're supposed to, like, take out all the other factors. You can't take geography, queerness, social class, economic situation. You can't separate them, can you? Not so it's really hard to yeah, come yeah. up with any firm conclusions. So can we at least say, Tim, right, so if we're going back to this central question, can we at least say that we've all had to deal with our own difference as queer people, so difference can be less of an obstacle to us when we're forming relationships of any kind? Yeah, I think so. I think, But again, I think it's just about communication, isn't it? And I think if you, you know, like if you like with me, you know, with my partner, we met each other in a bar and there was that physical attraction. So wherever, you know, and at that time I didn't know, you know, I thought he was a nutter, to be perfectly frank. Um, but then he turned out not to be. So I and Well, not because he was posh, just because of no, other just, things. Just because of other things and just, you know, and yeah, I I I think I've got a chip on my shoulder about being working class, actually. I have um, dismissed potential suitors for being too posh. <laughs> I know that's terrible to admit, isn't it? And basically... But then again, you know, if you look at sort of like, uh, you know, with sort of my part, you know, there was a time when his, his parents, for, he didn't come out until very late because of the, because of what the job his dad did and how that was not in the right class system to have oh, really? gay people in that environment uh -huh. interesting do you see what i mean so i think it's 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 people's expectations isn't it as well okay right rosie we need to wrap up let's try and come to some kind <laughs> of loose conclusion do you think even though everything that we've said do you think social class can be less of an issue to queer people these days than it is to the cishet community or do you agree with me and tim that um We've all had to deal with our difference, being different to everybody else. So finding other people who are different to us is a bit less of an obstacle when we're forming relationships, friendships or romantic relationships. Yes, I, I think it can be because this is something I've 
written and thought about a lot in my work is how if you are queer and you've come out, particularly if you come out at a hostile time in the world, you have already thought a little bit outside of the box. So it starts to make you think about accepting others who may be different. I, I do think there is something in that. Although I do think like you two, I wanted to get to London, not so much to escape the North, but just it felt like the progress, progression of acceptance was accelerating at a greater pace in a bigger city like yeah. London. Mm. And fortunately, you know, now we see the northern cities catching up as well. Manchester was never far behind, but a lot of the other places around the country are, are much more tolerant than they were. You are listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. I am Matt Kane. I am chatting to my panellist, Rosie Wilby. Rosie, thank you for coming back. You appeared on this very show back in June when we were still surrounded and overwhelmed by COVID restrictions. I'm dying mm. to ask, what have you been up to since the restrictions have eased? Oh my goodness, it's been hectic. I've been at lots of festivals recording live episodes of my podcast, The Breakup Monologues. So book festivals like Wimbledon Book Festival, also broader arts festivals like Green Man Festival in Wales. Just the other week, I was recording an episode in the science area there. Was so that, that a that super was really, spreading really event? I keep hearing that all these festivals <laughs> are super spreading events. Oh, God. Well, I was at Wilderness Festival in Oxfordshire as well. And I have to say, of all the festivals I've been into, that one was really, really strict about doing your COVID tests. Um, and you kept getting messages. If you were staying at the festival, you had to do another test. You had to fill in a health survey, health questionnaire. So they were pretty rigid. They were slightly more relaxed at Green Man, I have to say. <laughs> but but they, they, you know, all of them had a lot of infrastructure in place for you testing, uploading photos of you with your test result and, um, and all of that kind of thing and showing screenshots of your NHS app um, pass and all of that kind I of thing. I love so, flashing mine. I love getting my notes uh, and flashing it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Right. So also, as I mentioned earlier, you were reunited earlier this week with your Radio Diva co-presenters to relive some of the best moments from the iconic radio show. I mentioned that this went out on Virgin Radio Pride. It's on our podcast, Virgin Radio Pridecast, wherever you get your podcasts from. How was it for you, Rosie? It was lovely, um, but I, I should just confess, we didn't all get together in the same room again. Um, I, I trawled through the archives and found some of our highlights and greatest hits and selected a really diverse range of clips from our favourite interviews and introduced those and some of the best live music sessions that we'd had as well. And I also got Rachel Shelley to record some special intro links for some of her features that she had recorded on the podcast. And so, yeah, we didn't all get together in the same room again. I don't want to um, let people think that we were we had a reunion of, of that kind because um, sadly everyone was really busy, but um, there was a wonderful production company I was put in touch with by Virgin who helped me shape this uh, really lovely kind of retrospective show that takes listeners who had listened to us in the past down memory lane and also new listeners it gives them hopefully a flavour of what we used to get up to. 
Fantastic. And I'm always raving about your book, The Breakup Monologues. It Aww. was released in the UK back in, in, I think, the end of May. We chatted about it last time you were on the show. But much more recently, it's been released in Australia. I know you had the book launch um, via Zoom earlier this week, just a few days ago. What's it been like for you launching the book based on your personal experiences in and whole other country and culture. Yeah, it's been really interesting. And the book has come out in the US as well since we last spoke. Um, but in Australia, it's really been going well. And uh, I've done so many podcast interviews, um, newspaper features, and been really, really busy with, with events. And, and we did this fabulous launch event with a queer bookshop in Melbourne called Hares and Hyenas. And that's been it. really, really fun. Yeah. It's like the equivalent of Gaze the Word, I suppose. But they were wonderful and put on a lovely event. Um, I had a queer comedian hosting it and asking me questions. And yeah, it was really, really great. And yeah, doing so many podcasts over there that keep uh, getting released and coming out and, and really great radio shows. So it's been exciting to, to you know, talk to a different country, but it just means I've had these weird uh, days and schedules recently because I've been getting up to talk to evening shows first thing in the morning, you know, before my breakfast. And <laughs> it's been a bit all over the place. And then I've been sometimes recording US podcasts late in the evening as well. So it's I've been a bit all over the place. All right. So I've got a question for you. You know, we've just been talking about differences. What about cultural differences? If you think about the UK, the US, Australia, where the books come out, have the different cultures responded differently to the same subject matter have you noticed different things that they've picked up on or um, things that have gone down well or not so well um not really although i i think breakups is universal enough that that i think people find that relatable wherever they are in the world we all have relationships and sadly they end sometimes or we've certainly supported friends through relationship breakups um i think when i did a few years ago now did some gigs in new york and la i had to think a bit more about my cultural references because often a lot of my live work has been about sort of my life in london and in a uk city and <laughs> you know the kind of references about i don't know bus numbers or i i think when i did my show in new york i i once mentioned lemsip <laughs> And nobody knew what, what you were talking, talking about. No, well, I, I imagine I if about. I imagine if you were talking about the differences between Ormskirk in the northwest and Tim talking about growing up in the northeast, we get the difference between the northeast and Manchester, for example. They just wouldn't, would they, in America? No, no. You you have to be more broad and not too geographically specific. But I think that's a good test to sort of try and be be quite broad and I think I first started thinking about that when I, I was writing my first book I was lucky enough to do a writer's retreat in LA at the University of Southern California I got selected for it's called the Lambda Queer Writers Retreat oh my so god I want to really go on that exciting. I want to go on that yeah. retreat to Southern California get me on that retreat <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of your um in terms of the book are there any plans is it so you've already had the biggies UK US Australia are your plans to take it anywhere else or are you thinking about next projects I am a little bit I've got a podcast pilot I'm working on for a new podcast which is called looking for my sister um so I've just been announcing that and it's about not having siblings but always feeling like I had a sister and um, what 
that means and where that comes from and whether I believe in the idea of past lives and whether I had a sister in a past life or whether I'm a bit too scientific and analytical to believe in that and maybe there's some different kind of explanation and about being a, just a lonely only child or you know maybe my mom had you know it, when she was pregnant maybe she had twins for a while and lost one of them but never knew you know there's this idea of lost twins and yeah. um so i'm kind of exploring some of these ideas and um you know there are friends of mine who who found out in therapy that they, they have had a lost twin and they've all you know in hypnotherapy and so on so it, it's interesting and i'm sort of just looking at these ideas of siblings and what what they mean and why we maybe idealize the idea of having a sibling or a sister if we didn't have one when of course lots of people don't even get on with their siblings and say oh you can have mine (laughs) it's interesting that you say that i'm thinking even though this is our last episode of sunday roast i'm thinking that's something we've not touched on sibling relationships because there's already rivalries in the mix between siblings and actually if you factor in sexuality and maybe feeling like a disappointment to parents or competition they can be quite intense relationships although your podcast is about not having one and I wonder if that's actually when you come out to parents I mean it's difficult to say isn't it because you never had it any other way but I wonder if the worry about disappointing them is even more pronounced when you're an only child and you know in the days that we came out they thought it meant you wouldn't have any grandchildren and yeah yeah that's absolutely right I wrote an article recently about how you know, I always thought I wouldn't be able to have children and it's almost bittersweet that times have changed and women now can have children in in lots and lots of different ways. But I think really throughout all the time when I would have seriously considered having children, it felt inaccessible except to maybe a really really affluent bunch of lesbians who could afford IVF, (laughs) you know, and back to the ideas of social class, I think. And most lesbians I know, my age and my peer group, felt that they could not have children because that was the narrative at the time that they came out at the end of the 80s or beginning of the 90s. So, uh, yeah, I I think you're absolutely absolutely right um there, there was a pressure and i you know my mum was absolutely lovely when i came out you know she embraced it and started telling all the neighbors and was very excited telling me about her friend joan who she'd always been close with um <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know um that she did she did say oh well this means we'll never have grandchildren that was certainly the understood logic of the time, wasn't it? Um, but I, interestingly, there are lots of siblings who are both gay and then yes. feel a bigger pressure. You know, if, if the one who hasn't come out yet is going to come out, they're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I'm just <laughs> thinking, oh my God, is it, during the course of this show, are we going to be thinking about all these things we've not talked about that we want to talk about? But yeah. we need to wrap up. So, Rosie, tell us the name of your podcast again. Did you say Looking for My Sister? Yes, it's just a pilot that's going to be out soon. But obviously the breakup monologues is the main one that I still do. And there's been loads of live episodes that have come out this summer. Fantastic. Thank you very much. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. My brilliant panel, Rosie Wilby and Tim MacArthur, are still here. And now we're going to be discussing LGBTQ plus media. So, as we've discovered on this show, the LGBTQ plus community can be very diverse and also very fractious. There's often disagreement over what it and what and we are looking for. 
When Virgin Radio Pride launched back in June, it joined the ranks of queer media outlets, from Gay Times to Diva, from Pink News to Gaydio. Lots of these have come under fire from members of our community. And Virgin Radio Pride was subjected to criticism before it even went on air. More of that later. So the question is, what do we actually want from our queer media? And post-pandemic, how do we think it should evolve in order to best serve the needs of our community, if at all, if we think it should evolve at all. I am delighted now that we are joined by Darren Stiles. He's an award-winning publisher who's currently the owner of Attitude magazine and the new UK edition of Rolling Stone. He's also a trustee of the Attitude magazine foundation, which has already overseen donations totaling more than £100,000. He's also a patron of the Elton John AIDS Foundation and the Terence Higgins Trust. And he was an awarded an OBE by the Queen in 2018. And he was my former boss when I was at Attitude. So thank you very much for joining us, Darren. Oh, you're very welcome, Matt. And and I think of all of those things, clearly the single most impressive one was formerly being your boss. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, so discussing LGBTQ plus media when you were my boss when I was at Attitude, what I want to ask you to start off with is there's lots of talk about Pride events being more inclusive, more diverse, representing all sectors of the queer community. And this was a big thing when we started the radio station, a big pressure. Do you think, um, I nearly said old media, existing gay media should be more like this, more queer, more inclusive? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, it's a process of evolution, uh, I think. Um, we're very fortunate in that since I bought Attitude in 2015 um, and thereby became the first gay owner of the title, incredibly, in its in its near 30 years. At that point, the magazine became of its community. Um, so, you know, it's owned by a gay man, it's written by a gay man, uh, the, contribute, uh, the contributors are, are across the spectrum, LGBT and Q. And so I think that's, that's an evolutionary process and, and that helps. And one of the reasons that we started the foundation back in summer 2018 was I felt if we were taking from, drawing on, uh, the LGBTQ community, then we needed to be giving something back. And that gives us an opportunity to have a different kind of conversation with advertisers, readers and supporters. Um, and so I, I think it, it's an incredibly broad audience. It's occasionally an angry audience, but that's not unique to our community. That's unique to everybody. Most interactions socially nowadays um, are prone to get polarised and angry. Well, um, and and sorry to just very briefly interject, um, if it's any consolation, the subject that has come up on this show in our 14 weeks more than any other has been infighting within the gay, queer community. People having a go at each other. We'll come back to that, but go on. So you were, you were saying... Yeah, so um, so I think there has been a process of, of, of gentle evolution, if you like, over the last five years in, in, in particular, I mean, we've all gained a broader understanding uh, uh, of, of what the queer community is and all, all of those different points of intersection. Um, and so uh, our magazine, for example, um, 
the awards that we do, uh, the Pride Awards we do every summer, uh, which obviously you, you and I worked on, Matt, and, and, and you were key to bringing back to life, uh, and the awards, the main awards show that we do every October, um, every year we make sure there is LGBT and Q representation right through the winners, right through the presenters, um, and you have to do that. That's you, you have to represent as broadly as you are able. You will be criticised regardless. Um, uh, it, it's it's a meritocracy. So inevitably, when you're giving out awards, you're giving awards out to the most deserving cases, and they don't always conveniently tick every box for you every year. So you have to ask people to take a step back and, and view what you do over time rather than in a single moment. Um, Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Can I just, can I ask you, you know, you say you have to do it and you say the magazine is now of its community. Um, so we're thinking about what readers, what consumers of queer media want. Do you think this desire, um, you know, you mentioned the early days of Attitudes in, in the late 90s. Do you think this desire to have community engagement is a recent demand of the audience? Um, are you responding to a demand that's there when you say we have to? Uh, yes, yes, there is absolutely a, a demand now um, that, that wasn't there before. Um, I think that, I mean, the community as a whole, uh, actually, I, I, I would argue has has changed and actually has become closer and less divided. Um, you know, when, when I was younger, there, there, there were gay bars uh, that gay men went to. And, and that's not where lesbians went. Uh, and and um, th those things were very separate. I think as the community has come under attack um, from a number of different areas, some elements of the mainstream media, some elements of the anti-trans brigade, I think it has pulled the community together in a way that perhaps it wasn't before. Um, and... Uh, and so, yeah, we absolutely do feel the pressure from our readers to represent LGBTQ+, not just gay men. 84% of our readers are gay men, but that doesn't mean they don't have interest in or allyship with every other aspect of the community. Fantastic. Right. I want to bring in our AIRS panellists. Let's start with Rosie, who was nodding for a lot of what Darren was saying. Can you tell us what queer media do you consume and what do you really like about it? Because often people have a very intense emotional, I know from my time at Attitude, a very intense emotional connection with the queer media that they grew up with and still are loyal to. Yes, I think having queer media is so important. I think there has been at some points in, in recent years a sort of argument that you know, queerness should filter through mainstream culture and it isn't necessary to have specialist magazines, specialist radio shows, specialist comedy nights. But of course, I was presenting a queer radio show for many, many years before I presented Radio Diva. I had a show called Out in South London on Resonance FM, a show that I just started off off my own um, devices, really. And um I, I just think it's important because we can just talk more openly and you can inspire other people. And there is that sense of community 
And I just think, yes, it's great to have huge celebrities who are queer, who have sort of broken way beyond that community. Um, and, and obviously the queer magazines often feature those people as in incredible role models. But I think there need to be spaces where we are featuring more local grassrootsy theatre groups and performers. And I've I've always done that. And of course, Diva magazine, I've been very closely linked with having presented a radio show for them for three years. And similarly, we try to be very inclusive and have lots of trans guests and intersex guests as well. And by represent the B, the bi's, you know, everybody and, and lots of racial diversity, too. OK, fantastic. Right. You mentioned huge celebrities and you mentioned grassroots. So I want to talk to Tim. So last week when um, so you're involved with the grassroots theatre above the stag, very yeah. much community level. Um, last week, we were having a discussion about pride and some people were saying there shouldn't be big celebrities. It detracts from the grassroots engagement. Is so when we talk about big celebrities in magazines and Darren will have something to say about this. Um, you know, what is that balance? Because do we need them on the cover to get people to read them? So there may be more things inside. You know, like it or not, we are a celebrity-driven society. What do you think about this balance between the community engagement and the big celebs when it comes to queer media? I, I think if it's... it's, I think it's one of those things, I think, because everybody, obviously, you know, as you mentioned, we are a society that obsessed with celebrity. And I think if you've got some sort of big major celebrities who maybe come out uh, later in their life and they make, I think that's really important because the I think as a queer community, we have to have role models. And especially when we're younger, when we're lost and we don't have the confidence to be who we are, I think it, it helps with those coming out journeys. Um, I find um, many years ago, I worked for Pride London and I used to organise, programme the, a couple of their stages when they used to do um, pride events and it was one thing that we were always aware of that we had to get even at that point we ha I had to program a diverse range of acts to reflect the queer community what it was 15 years ago which I think is very different to what it is now I think it, it's much more uh, stronger I think more people are, are confident to be who they are and express their opinions but you know even programming above the stag you know my remit as a programmer I have to make sure that I present the queer community in that space and from November you know I'm programming seven shows a week every night there's a different artist a queer artist so you know I'm doing my queer music night I'm doing my new writing for Asians and I don't diverse community we've got new writing starting scratch night we've got a drag night i've got a trans night do you know what i mean so as a as running that and i know it's not media but it's the same it's a queer yeah, yeah, space yeah, yeah, yeah. that it's it has to be safe and it's representation for our community and that is so important to me as the program of that of above the side cabaret lounge fantastic and so darren you know we were talking about um big celebs attitude obviously is not just a print magazine anymore and we were talking about the power of celebrity but also the power of social media do you find if you have a big celebrity on the cover and it's splashed all over social media this isn't just like fluff is it because surely people in countries where it's still illegal to be gay or there's much less acceptance maybe see this and actually it gives them a very positive message yeah, that's that's exactly the the, the thing. I mean, uh, being absolutely honest about it, celebrity sells. So uh, you know, we're a commercial entity. So if you want to sell magazines, a recognisable face on the cover uh, answers that commercial call, and that applies equally in social media, 
uh, online, uh, video, YouTube, wh wherever. Um, but the reason that it cuts through is exactly as, as you say, a famous face delivering our lived experience has resonance that goes way beyond anything that somebody who isn't recognized can, can achieve. And also, and perhaps as significantly, um, cuts through to mainstream. So, uh, so I'll take someone actually who, who isn't gay as an example. Sebastian Vettel, the Formula One driver, has been in the news uh, recently for wearing rainbow colours uh, at the Hungarian Grand Prix and has, has done a, a media round uh, subsequent uh, to that. And, and when somebody so visible um, is supporting our community, um, it, it echoes with people who wouldn't ordinarily be engaged at that level. Same with Tom Daly using his press conference so brilliantly at the Olympics, having won a gold medal. You know, the, the most significant moment in his life to date or in terms of his sporting career. And, it, and he uses that moment and that platform to talk uh, our community up and his lived experience up. It, it, it changes the world for, um, uh, uh, for as you say, for, for kids who are coming out, um, but it just, it changes the hearts and minds of straight people who don't necessarily have LGBTQ contact. They don't have gay friends. It's not part of their lived experience. Um, and they see somebody who appears so, in inverted commas, normal, having this incredible experience and telling this incredible story. And it, and it resonates and cuts through uh, in, in a way that would take us decades otherwise. So um, how does it make you feel then? We're going to pause for some music in a minute. But before we do, how does it make you feel, having said that, when you get um, queer people on social media going, hey, 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 celebrity this, celebrity that, you know, Attitude just wants big celebrities on the cover. Um, how does that make you feel when you're, you know, using celebrity as one tool in your arsenal, one weapon in your arsenal to achieve certain things? Well, uh, frustrated is, is the short <laughs> answer. Um, you know, I, 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 I think as soon as I see somebody offering that as a point of view, I know they're not reading all of our output. Uh, our, our output across d d every day, uh, every week, every month, every year, uh, is probably 20% celebrity. Um, they're just getting angry about that bit. They're not reading the rest of it. Um, and so consequently, when you see that as, as a response, you think, well, you're just passing through um, and, and, and you'll be angry about something else tomorrow and, and it won't be us. I would like to bring Tim MacArthur in and ask you, do you think, Rosie said something earlier, do you think as a minority community we will always need media outlets that cater specifically to our minority needs? I think we do. I really do. I think it's I think it's good to to show the rest of the world who we are and what we believe in. And yeah, I, I think definitely we need to have a presence and we need to have a voice. And I think our voice is growing. Um, I think, you know, obviously we are, as you mentioned earlier, Matt, you know, there's countries around the world that d still don't accept homosexuality or any sort of queer people in the world but i think we are it feels that there is a change and sometimes i ask myself this question and whether it's just because you know we're in a london bubble and sometimes we can feel a bit safer but i generally think you know with my mates who live in all different parts of the country they all speak very positively about the gay people that they know in their towns or their villages and also i think what's really interesting is uh with the pandemic i think a lot of people are leaving london and moving to different parts queer 
people are moving to different parts of the country to settle down and create new lives in an area that might not have been welcoming many years ago to the queer community. Mm, absolutely. So, Rosie, can I ask you, so we were talking about um, whether we're going to need queer-specific media. You've been very involved in Diva, um, which is predominantly for gay women. I'm imagining the 84% of readers of Attitude Who Are Gay Men is reflected, I'm imagining, in Diva's readership. Do you think there'll always be a need for the sub-communities within the LGBTQ plus umbrella to have media that addresses their own specific needs? Or do you think this is a tall order when some of those groups are quite minority? It is a tall order and it's, you know, it's difficult to sustain a business when you're trying to cater for a small group of people. And, you know, lesbians, queer women, bi women, uh, trans women, you know, women as a, as a sort of subcategory have often been more difficult to cater for than men. I know women who've run queer female spaces like um, wonderful Elaine McKenzie who ran the Glass Bar in London and South Opia and it was very difficult to sustain as a business because lesbians don't kind of consume in the same way as gay men. We don't necessarily go out as much and spend as much money going out. Um, maybe as women just within a patriarchal society, we maybe don't have as much money. So I think it is incredibly difficult to cater for women within our queer community, but it would be a tragedy if we lost magazines like Diva and there were other magazines when when I was growing up, but Diva has been a real mainstay. And I think it's, it's great that, that we have these places and we have these spaces and you know i i kind of think we we need to keep it going and that we need that community i mean you know i've done lots of kind of specific lgbtq comedy nights over my time as a comedian and it's often where queer women feel safest going you know it often gets questioned oh why do you need queer comedy nights surely comedy nights are all queer friendly all open-minded but i know so many women who are like no and i don't I don't want to go to just any old comedy night. I want to go to one where I know I'm going to recognise what people are talking about on stage and I'm going to recognise other people like me in the audience and feel safe to hold my partner's hand. And women often don't. You know, it's not that long ago we had two young queer women mm. being attacked on a bus, you know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Darren, um, you know, Rosie mentions um, the stick that some lesbian stand-up nights have had. When I mentioned earlier the criticism Virgin Radio Pride had before we even went on air, when it was first announced in the press, we had, you know, the comments saying things like, <laughs> this is ghettoisation. Why isn't there a station exclusively for straight people? Is there such a thing as gay music? This is just divisive, etc." I'm paraphrasing, but I did actually read a lot of them out on the first episode. Um... You've mentioned some of the stick that you've had at Attitude. To what extent do you think people in our community are just always going to moan about gay and lesbian magazines in the same way that Pride events can never keep everyone happy? Um, and, you know, do you, do you find it hurtful, more hurtful, when you get criticism from within our community than when you do from outside it? Um, I, I think I did, I did at the start, actually. Um, uh, not that I was expecting accolades or or to be treated as a, a you know a, a white knight riding in um, from the south, but um, but when I bought Attitude, I, I, I was surprised. I, I think people are very passionate about it. They they do love it. Um, 
and they're incredibly engaged with it. Um, uh, uh, but they do get angry um, disproportionately so as, 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 a, as a result of that passion, uh, I, I guess. And, and so, it, it, yeah, it was a bit hurtful at the, at the start because um, I thought, well, you know, I've just got here and I'm, I'm trying my best. And, um, and, and we are so broad a church um, and we cast our nets so wide. I mean, I remember, Matt, one of the first Attitude Awards you and I, I worked on, um, we had Laverne Cox, um, Sam Smith um, uh, in, in the same year, uh, and Kylie and Prince Harry and, and all of that stuff uh, going on. An extraordinary mix of talents and, and, and different people. Um, and, and yet still the following day, um, there's something we've missed or something we, we, we haven't done. Um, but, but we've got a black trans actress from Hollywood on a London stage to talk about her lived experience. And even if you're not black or not trans or not a woman, for God's sake, there's something there that you can take and, and, and own and, 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 and understand on the basis of, of her experience. It's a, it's just a, 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 a strange thing. But if, if I could just, uh, uh, just answer just very quickly, the, the notion about ghettoized media or, 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 or subsets of media that don't work. My, my dad was a, a news agent for 25 years. And so I, I grew up with this really peculiar knowledge of specialist magazines. Um, there's a magazine called Cajun Avery Birds. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the real thing. There's, there's cats today. There's dogs today. Now, uh, there's, there's a railway modeling magazine called Railway Modeler. You know, these are these are real magazines. Now, um, imagine for a second um, somebody who who is a, an avid reader of Cajun Avery Birds magazine um, being set about on social media by somebody who reads Cats Today because they like cats and cats hate birds. You know, it's it's ludicrous that you would suggest that by having someone who somebody who reads a magazine about birds, Cajun Avery Birds. <laughs> That, that they're somehow excluding everybody who likes cats or dogs or who reads House mm. Beautiful magazine. It's a, it's a nonsense. Specialist media exists to cater for an audience that wants to find its own tribe. Um, and that's not exclusive, that's inclusive. Brilliant. Thank you for making that point so well. I want to ask Tim, so we've spoken on this show and actually Attitude has spoken about it a lot as well. Matthew Todd primarily, who mm. we had on a couple of weeks ago. Gay shame, internalised homophobia. Do you think sometimes gay people don't like the version of themselves that's reflected back at them? in our own media outlets. And there's something about that that's behind the way we lash out at media representations of us. What a great question. <laughs> that is a brilliant question. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's how, where you are and how comfortable you feel in your skin as a gay man and how confident you are with your sexuality. And I think it's that, I know for me personally, when I first came out, I was obsessed with my sexuality, if that makes sense. I of still how, am. Of, of how I should behave, how I should look, what, you know, yeah, what, yeah. who am I? And as I've got older, now I'm in my 40s, I don't care, I don't think about my sexuality. I remember I used to meet people and go, hi, I'm Tim, I'm gay. You know, You've I'm a worked Capricorn. it out though, haven't but you? But I've worked it out, but I think for me personally, it's, I think I'm comfortable with it, but I can imagine there is a lot of queer people who are not as comfortable with who they are and they, they haven't accepted them. They ha I'm sounding like a therapist, but, but they haven't learned to love who they are yet. And I think that is maybe creates the anger when they see an image of themselves or 
reflective in gay media i think that's what makes them maybe feel uncomfortable and makes them want to be angry and lash out because that's 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 my personal opinion on it well and interestingly darren was talking about passion and rosie i'm sure you know growing up in Ormskirk, as we were talking about before um you know i'm <laughs> sure that queer media was important to you when you were growing up and as Darren said this is partly why people Mm. get so passionate for me you know when I was a teenager I used to read Attitude it was you know in those days pre-internet they're a lifeline aren't they and I'm sure at Diva there are you have so many readers who have this kind of fierce loyalty and that you know we're talking about internalized shame sometimes um inspiring people to attack but on the positive side sometimes it's because they curse so much was it a, was yes. it a big thing for you when you were growing up then yes definitely um it was very i mean really i first heard about lesbianism reading problem pages and, and problem letters in just 17 <laughs> and in teen <laughs> magazines and you know the girls had written in go i think i'm a lesbian and i would be pouring over the answers because i'd be thinking well i think i am too and you know i i actually um you know one evening when my parents were both out i think at, at the theater or something you know going back to the notions of a class and growing up middle class and i rang lesbian line to find out you know more about being a lesbian what that meant and uh, mm. you know, i was told that even um, even pat butcher on eastenders was a lesbian so <laughs> i was like oh okay <laughs> um and I, I suppose you were just trying to say that you know lesbians are everywhere um so um yeah i think it's really important but i think because there's you know, particularly when you have specialised media within a specialised group. So if you have, you know, a queer women's magazine within the LGBT media, I think there's so much pressure put on it that people, there's there's an expectation, there's a big burden of expectation, a bit like when we have a relationship where people put this burden of expectation onto them to somehow be amazing and wonderful. And sometimes they're not, sometimes they're a letdown. And it's the same with any queer media. We, we just want so much from it that sometimes we feel let down by it because we've we've got these unrealistic expectations. It's the same thing whenever there's any lesbian TV show on, like what you know, the, you know, the L word was was loved, but there were people who kind of would would criticise it because it presented a certain type of queer woman and not, I didn't have enough diversity. But of course now it's come back with a sort of revamped version that is way more diverse. But there well, are always going to be. People who criticise things because they expect so much. But also it's when they're the, you mentioned a relationship, most relationships are with one person or romantic sexual ones. It's when there's all the pressure on the one, isn't it? And Diva in particular, um, you know, it's the one big lesbian magazine. You know, and, and 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 like you say about the L word, it would be easier. These, these um, shows would be under less pressure if there were more of them. Don't you yeah, think? Yeah, that's... I, that's exactly it and i think that's that's why there's criticism is because if you're the only one flying the flag okay right i'm going to come back to darren in a second tim so before i do can we just go back to the thrust of this debate which is how does queer specific media need to evolve do we think to best serve the needs of our community if you think it does indeed need to evolve is there anything that while we've got a queer media mogul on the line is there anything that you think yeah i i think maybe as i'm i think for me maybe as i'm getting older i maybe like to see more emphasis on maybe my age range 
in my 40s because I I don't really, you know, as I remember like reading Attitude and Gay Times and I've sort of drifted away from that really and probably see more articles online if something pops up on Twitter or social media if there's an article that way. But I think it's, you know, I think media, social, the social media aspect of things is a really important thing to get news stories out and maybe you know interesting things and facts and stories you know we we're a community we want to hear about things so i think i think as you know and after the pandemic i think the world has to evolve and we can't go back to how it was before now i think things have been changed for a long time and it's going to be how that the ripple effect of what we do now okay brilliant darren don't answer that just yet i'm going to give you the last word rosie what do you think how does queer media need to evolve do you think well, you know, like, like Tim says, things have changed so much uh, with the pandemic. And I think, let's see, you know, I think we, we are evolving. I think queer media has been evolving in a really positive way. And let's just see, let's just see where it goes. And I think perhaps, perhaps, you know, we need to just think more about those class divisions that we were talking about earlier and just, mm. just accepting everybody and, and feeling like a community together and getting through this recovery process um, where so many of us have lost our jobs and lost loved ones and getting through that together and in a really inclusive way. Darren, how is, give us an answer, how is queer media going to evolve? What do you think about what Rosie and Tim have said and what are your plans for the evolution of Attitude in the future? Um, uh, well, I think I think a lot of what they say is is fair. I think um, we actually, over the last eighteen months, uh, have evolved enormously um, by necessity, um, and the, the pandemic has been an accelerant in that regard. So, um, uh, print sales have dropped off, but subscriptions uh, are much higher than they were because obviously people are now in the habit of buying and and uh, buying magazines and having them sent home. Um, the shift to digital that's been happening. Uh, relatively slowly over a five-year period has accelerated quite dramatically. So uh, our numbers of online visitors uh, have gone up by a third in the last uh, 18 months uh, on an average monthly basis. Um, And the shift to video is significant and is not going away. So it's quite possible now for us to have a video series that will be seen by a quarter of a million people an episode on YouTube. And that's that's with only 20,000 YouTube subscribers at the minute. Um, but nonetheless, a quarter of a million people were finding our Drag Race uh, follow-up interviews uh, last year. Um, absolutely huge. Um, and the same, we did a uh, an interview uh, with a couple of the guys from um, uh, Love Victor. Uh, and that's been watched by more than 300,000 people uh, now. And so the, the shift to video um, is is significant and, and accelerating. And that works obviously across all of the social media platforms, not just uh, mm. YouTube. So um, uh, average, average, our average reader age actually is 38 uh, on, online uh, and, and in print. Uh, in fact, slightly older, 39 for online. Um, which 39 is, which still makes me still makes me feel like an old bird <laughs> <laughs> i'm saying nothing yeah, um but um but yeah so the, the consumption habits have, have changed and our, and our advertisers are, are are following that um and so uh so that that's the change to watch for i think the the, the increase mm. in video 
Right, fantastic. Darren, thank you for that glimpse into the future and thank you for joining us. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. I am Matt Kane. I'm here with Tim MacArthur. We're going to be chatting about what you've been up to now, Tim, in a little break. (laughs) So tell us, you started your career in entertainment very early. You've written before that you made scrapbooks of articles about theatre when you were a really young boy. Oh my goodness, yeah. Where do you think <laughs> where do you think your obsession came from? Well, um, I think up until about the age of 13, I wanted to be a bus driver. I mean, look at me now. <laughs> you would never realise that, would you? Um, and then I remember my uh, best friend, Glenn, his nan, saw an advert in the Evening Gazette, the Teesside Evening Gazette, advertising, uh, looking for people to be an Oliver, Lionel Bart's Oliver for the Amdram at Billingham Forum. And she said to me, Tim, you like a bit of theatre, because my brother was training to be an actor, so we'd come to London and see lots of shows. So I was already sort of seeing a bit of theatre. And that was it, 1987, I did all of it. And then um, moved to London when I was 17, got into Mount View, and that was it. And I feel, you know, now like 25 years later, I feel incredibly lucky to have done the work I've done so far because it's been very varied and, you know, oh, I met wonderful people and worked with some amazing talent. But also you've done very varied roles. As I said in your intro, you've um, done so many different things, both in front of and yeah. beh- backstage. Is there any one of these roles that you secretly like more than the others that you'd like to focus on? Or are you happy being... I don't want to say jack of all trades because that sounds a bit pejorative, but wonderful at everything. It, it's really a really interesting question because I, I did worry for a while that I was jack of all trades, master of none. You know that that great expression as you mentioned, and now I and now I'm I'm sort of much more comfortable with what decisions I'm making regarding what I want to do. And I know that you know I love theatre, I love musicals, I love plays, but now for me the thought of doing like eight shows a week for twelve months mm-hmm. just doesn't appeal. And it's it's great, and I still go and see shows in the West End and on tour and everything. But for me now, I think doing my cabaret work, you know, with my cabaret work, I've worked seasons in New York, seasons in Chicago, Kuala Lumpur. I got cockamouth in your, in, in know, your intro. I know, I know, I know. And <laughs> cockamouth, um, you know, and it's it's just been a really, yeah, I've loved it really. And it's just, and but I've always been a yes person. All my different hats I never wanted to do. Haven't we all done? I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I remember like my dream was being in like Les Mis when I left Mountview and I, I did nearly get the show, but then, you know, everything I've done, someone has said, oh, do you want to come and present this radio show? And I've gone, yes, didn't know anything about it. And, uh, do you want to direct a show? Yes. Why not? Um, so, yeah, so I, f- I feel it's been a very, it's, it feels very rich, not money wise, but as in creativity yeah. and friendships and just, just being open to do things and being, and being creative. That's what I love about it so yeah. much. And, you know, right at the beginning of the show, you were talking about your upbringing and how difficult it was. Obviously, theatre has a big reputation for being welcoming and accepting yeah. of queer people. Was this always the case for you when you went to Mount View Drama School? Was it literally just like, vroom, you know, this is amazing? Actually, uh, you'd be surprised, but they didn't really like the queer people at Mount View. Oh, really? Yeah, so I remember in our sort of our time, time at Mount View, they put sort of all the, the larger girls and the gays in one group. And uh, yeah, it was very... Because they didn't know what to do with them. Because they, they didn't know what they couldn't to do. Get yeah, and I really thought actually that it would be a sort of a, a place to be accepted. And it, it wasn't as... It was very... Uh, the teachers were gay, but actually the the environment, the, the sort of the straight boys were much more given uh, priority treatment over the three of us that were gay, which is really interesting looking back on it. Well, they all... People thought that star quality was 
bound up with straightness, didn't they? The, yeah. The, you know, if you if you have a romantic lead, the audience kind of have to fancy yeah. them. And, and, and also, they're... we talked about the class thing, you know, as well, about the sort of yeah, the yeah. northern thing. So when I was at drama school, it was, it was beaten out of us with a carpet beater that we weren't allowed to have regional accents. So did you used to have a regional accent? Really northern, yeah. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. And then it's just sort of lost. So, you know, that I found that really interesting where now the industry, the entertainment industry embraces regional accents and yeah. you're told to keep your own accent so it, it's it's been a quite a fascinating shift in process of training and time and what what works and what doesn't work i think and one of the things working very well for you at the moment is the way that you program the cabaret lounge above the stag yeah london's premier lgbtq plus theater yeah. can you tell us um what is it that you enjoy most about this? It must be amazing to bring new queer talent. To it is. And I, I think for me, that's the most exciting thing is about giving a platform to different areas of the queer community so they can perform and they can, you know, and it's and, and in my programming as well. I make sure that, you know, obviously I have, you know, my names, some of my names that I know will sell. And then I'll have a new up and coming talent that will also sell because all their friends will come and see it but sometimes it can be their first experience of doing a live show and as someone who's been asked put in that position yeah. that's really lovely as well so um no I'm, I'm really really loving it and we've got you know i've just finished programming the season well, tell us Christmas. tell us what you've got that we can look forward um, to give us some of your highlights so we've got um the rainbow in of course is coming barb younger fantastic um, uh emma rawson charlie wood who's a new trans performer is doing uh charlie's uh, Halloween show Fantastic. Um, it's it's a real good mix it's a real good mix and also it gives me you know the chance to to develop shows as well that I want to do as well which is great you know so like I interviewed uh, my mate Duncan James ah. um, we did a Q&A because obviously he's you know been really interesting in his life you know coming out as bisexual and coming out as gay so we did a show with him where I interviewed him and we're going to go on tour well, I saw that you're doing some Q&As Q coming up at the Ironworks in, in Brighton. Brighton. Yeah, One yeah. is with Duncan James, and the other with Christopher Biggins. Yeah, Chris Biggins. So Chris Biggins, randomly, uh, when I did my first day in 10 years ago in Panto, my mate Penny knew him and said, I'll have a word with Biggins. He'll give you a couple of advice. So we went out for a cup of tea. And he gave me advice about what to do, how to be a dame. Because when I started doing dame, I was, you know, early 30s. So that was quite a young dame, really. Yeah. Um, and I've just kept in touch with him over the years. So I just phoned him up and said, Biggins, can I come and interview you about your life? And we did that at the Stag. You know, I've got Giles Brandreth coming on as well in November. Um, so it, And Bonnie Langford. So, you know, there's all these, like, sort of really legends and talent that I'm going to do Q&As with. But it's really great fun working with Duncan because he's such a... a, a a great boy and i was his mother in panto as well so he always calls me mummy <laughs> as well everybody does a panto. everybody calls me mummy i know you're my sister dear <laughs> and as well as the q a's and above the stag you've got your director hat on again this year yeah can you give us some idea of what to expect from the uk tour of your sondime diva show oh yeah so this show basically because for three years i hosted the sondime society cabaret nights at the phoenix artist club and uh, one night i and you know obviously because i was a host and we did it for three years i would always have to find a different songs to sing every month so i started singing these uh leading lady songs from sondime musicals and one night in front of the audience i said to my musical director aaron Klingham, i said wouldn't it be interesting if we actually did a show where I did a gender switch and I sang the female leading songs and he went, what a good idea. So we just put it together and um, I've 
it's I've done it in New York, I've done it in Chicago, and I'm doing a little UK tour in the autumn, which is really exciting. So we're doing Brighton at the Ironworks, obviously above the Stag, Manchester, the Two Brewers, and the Stables in Hastings as well. And I think I'm going to get a couple of more dates coming as well. So that's really mm. exciting. And again, it's a gender switch. So it's you know me as a, a gay man singing last midnight from into the woods is that i was gonna say what's your favorite sundown song oh do you know that's a really difficult question because i just love his work so much and i think it it really the great thing about sundown is as i've matured when i first did my first sundown musical which was company in 2002 and then i did the baker and into the woods three years ago my understanding of his work changes and that's what's so adaptable about it because it's your own experiences in life that really you understand more sometimes a a sentence in a song or you know a lyric that five years ago I might have thought this is what it means and then you go oh no because of that life experience actually this is what it means. It's actually brilliant being older isn't it? It is. We get so much better nobody tells you this but I mean I'm sure it's different when the body starts to pack up but we just get so much better at doing life. Yeah yeah I agree with you and there was a time I and again as a, as a I think that's the interesting thing with gay media you know a lot of the gay media is aimed at younger gay men you know so for for as you sort of do get older you just sort of think oh I'm glad I'm not I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore know, I'm glad I'm not doing that you know and I, I think now I'm gonna you know I'm gonna be 50 in a couple of years time which I go like 50 oh my goodness me when you see it written down but then I think thank goodness I'm going to be that and not I'm not in my 30s anymore because it's 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 all a rich tapestry of life. And I remember a dear, dear friend of mine, he used to write songs for me, a, a guy called Brett Carr. And I remember in my 20s, he said to me, Tim MacArthur, enjoy the journey. Aww. And I never knew what it meant. And now I'm 46, I go, I know what that means now. Oh, what a lovely way to end. Right, we've got to have a quick music break. Before we do, tell us, tell our listeners where the best place is for them to find information about you online. Uh, if you go to timmacarthur.com and abovethestag.com and the ironworks, I think, .com as well is the, the shows with Biggins, Duncan and my son, Dom Divas as well. You're everywhere. I'm everywhere, dear. <laughs> it's going to be a busy old year. <laughs> the Sunday Roast with Matt Kane, Virgin Radio Pride. My delightful panel, Rosie Wilby and Tim MacArthur are still with me. And now we're going to be talking about comedy. So there's a long history of queer comedians from the camp gay entertainers of the past to the lesbian stand-ups of more recent times. I like to think that as queer people we have a special understanding of humour and we've often used this to negotiate a sometimes tricky relationship with mainstream society. But is there a danger that this can tip over into making fun of ourselves and this can damage our cause and the way we're perceived by mainstream society? I'm thrilled that at this point we are joined by Stephen Bailey. He is, if you don't know, a comedian who's appeared on Live at the Apollo and warmed up for some of the biggest names in comedy, including Catherine Ryan and Sarah Millican. He also hosts Celeb on the, Celebs on the Farm for Channel 4. Is it Channel 4 or Channel 5? 
Well, thought... it was Channel 5, but now it's actually MTV. Oh. It's moved a lot. Sorry, I'm messing up your intro, but Channel 5, now MTV. And you featured on loads of other shows, including Good Morning Britain, Celebrity Mastermind even, and as well as being a working-class ginger gay northern comic. We're all northern on this show today. He is also a black belt in taekwondo, has a degree in languages, as do I, and he loves a cons- Conspiracy theory. We're delighted to have you on the show, Stephen Bailey. Thanks so much for having me. What a long introduction. <laughs> I know. That's my excuse for messing it up. <laughs> no, I loved it. I loved everything. My favourite little error you made was celeb on the farm. I actually <laughs> think that would be a better show, especially during COVID times, just me and one other. <laughs> <laughs> right, Stephen, first question. The cliche about comedians is they learn to be funny so people will like them. With queer comedians, I think this is often compounded by the fact that we've absorbed a message that deep down there's something wrong with us. Was this true of you, do you think? I don't know, actually. I didn't realise that until years later, but I always thought I was doing it because I was like a poor kid from a council estate. So I was always doing it to, like, deflect from, you know, when you had, like, holes in your shoes and, like, you know, you had two stripe Adidas instead of the proper Adidas. And I thought it was, like, all the no-frills stuff. I was doing it to deflect from that. And, you know... Where I grew up was quite rough. So a lot of people were able to fight, which is why I started to do Taekwondo. But until I was good at Taekwondo, I thought I'd fight with my mouth. This is, you know what? This is so interesting. We were actually talking about social class and council estates in our first discussion. But I'm going to try and keep it on humour. So do you yeah. think, so you think your learning to be funny was primarily motivated by standing out because you were poorer than the other kids? Do you think the gayness, looking back on it now and understanding how things worked, it may not have made you a comedian. Do you think it made you a better comedian? Um, do you know what? I think just accepting everything made me a better comedian. Like Rosie will tell you, is like people love to tell you this is who you are in comedy. So you're the camp one, you're the gay one. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be that. I'll write about nectar cards. Like, I won't do <laughs> Like The one for me was going, every, you know, a lot of times people go, you know, oh, well, you do the gay stuff or the gay stuff might not work here. And it's like, I don't do gay stuff. Like, if I talk about relationships or sex, like every other comedian does, mine just happens to be same sex. Well, that's interesting because um, you say it might not work here. Actually, as we all know, a lot of stand-up audiences are straight men, um, you know, in a lot of parts of the country. When you do do the gay stuff, I know you say you're talking about relationships your life, but is there a part of you that thinks that by introducing some, dare I say it, political material or material that maybe has a bit of a political edge. You can be changing attitudes, maybe introducing activism by stealth. Yeah, I mean, I always say, like, um, another another favourite from the BBC these days is, like, what's your message? What are you saying? And I'm, like, literally, every time I stand on a stage in a working men's club in Coventry, I am a walking, talking political statement. I love it. I absolutely love it. Every time you're saying something, you know, I've had as recent as Tuesday, someone come up to me going, um, 
I wasn't sure I'd like you, you, you know, because of, but actually you were the best one on tonight. And it's like, I, I always go, thank you. That's still homophobic. Though. I know. Yeah. It's the actually, isn't it? It's the actually, it's like, did you yeah. have to say? Actually, I thought you were really good. Other things. Like, I know there's been a lot of discussion about like women in comedy, about how you have to straight away within the first 10 seconds prove, you know, know. or disprove, I should say, that women aren't funny, because obviously we know that's not true. But that's the first thought of a female comedian, is what I'm told. And then, but I'm always like, it's the same for me as going, you have to hit them straight away. Like, I don't Mm. have the privilege of setting up who, like, what I want to do, like a straight white male comedian. You have to go in straight away with something hilarious. Like you have to prove your worth and then it's like, okay, well, we can listen to them talk about like willies and things. <laughs> okay, right. So you mentioned women comedians. We've got one in the discussion. <laughs> Rosie Wilby, how much do you think your lesbianism fed into your humour or your desire to make people laugh when you were first blossoming as a comedian? Oh, I think it really, really did, because I think in an evolutionary sense, um, women are attracted to a good sense of humour, the GSOH, if you like. And so I transitioned from being a musician into being a comedian um, because I was single and I really wanted to meet a girlfriend. <laughs> I thought making women laugh would <laughs> would really help with that quest. I mean, I did meet a girlfriend, but not necessarily the right one um, initially. But, um, yeah, and it's been really interesting talking about being a gay woman because for many years, because I don't present in the way that people perceive lesbians should look or act or be I was not believed for many years I would get straight men come up to me afterwards after I'd done a load of material about being a lesbian about my life my authentic life as a lesbian go well you're not really a lesbian are you (laughs) and I thought well how how do they want me to prove it you know should I should I go and sleep with your girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) all right so Tim Rosie says she learned, part of the reason she learned to be funny was to attract um, potential romantic <laughs> mates of the same sex. With you, did it you... It work, by the way, Matt. <laughs> oh, does it? Does it? Work. <laughs> yeah. I noticed when I became a good comedian, I was like, I went from being like, you know, not really pulling. I, afterwards, <laughs> I was like a Manchester Six. fantastic i love it so tim did you where do you think the inspiration to be funny to make people laugh or to entertain people came from with you was it wanting to be accepted was it wanting to attract a partner of the same sex as is the case with Stephen and rosie um you know i i've really thought about this and I've, i've i know when it started i was really bullied at school when i was 15 i came out when i was 15 and i told two people and one of those person told the rest of the school. So this was a comprehensive comprehensive school in the northeast of England. And I used to get gay, gay, gay by like first years. And it, it really, obviously, it was a very difficult time for me. And I just remember thinking, how can I make this funny? What can I do to help me in this situation? So I told the girl that I thought I told everybody that I had got a job as a male stripper in a gay bar in Newcastle. And she told the rest of the school. So instead of me being called gay and all those horrible words that were very popular to describe gay people in the 1980s and the early 90s, um, they used to sing I was a male strip in a go-go bar to me. 
And that, for me, made me laugh. And I think at that point, I learned, I think maybe to deflect a little bit, to try and turn the a, a serious situation into a funny situation. So, and I, it was escapism, completely escapism. And I think really looking back on that moment now in my life has been sort of very revolutionary into what I do now as a performer and with, you know, when I dress up as Sister Mary and all that, I think I learned a lot from that moment in my life. It's interesting, isn't it, that sometimes people can pinpoint the moment when they realise the power of humour. Stephen, do you agree with the point I made in my intro when I was messing up the title of your show, just before (laughs) that, that as queer people, we have a special understanding of humour? Yeah, I think we have a good sense of humour. I think we really have to, I think we're really good at like taking it to the line as well. Like we really (laughs) laugh about dark things in our community. I've really noticed and I've noticed that from gigs as well is it's like, you know, queer people you can go a bit further with because we laugh at things almost, you know, laughter is the best medicine. So we do laugh at dark things. Um, but it's really interesting for me where I'm like, you have to draw a line somewhere because I always want to be moving LGBTQ plus rights in the right direction. So it's like I don't want to heavily rely on stereotypes and things. But at the same time, people who come to a comedy show. I'm always like, you have to get the balance. So right because a comedy club is not necessarily you know a match or a pride event yeah but at Mm. the same time you know there's one thing i've started doing i would say literally just since we started back after the pandemic which is if someone's having banter with me heckling in that way i will deal with it that's my job but if someone shouts out something homophobic which has happened which is the f word and um i stop the show i go i just stop I will not deal with it because I think by turning it into laughter, you're okay in it. And I don't know why it's took me so long to realise that. Maybe it's just confidence at where I am at in my career. But now I've learned to just start. I mean, it's only happened once since we've been back. But I, I went, nope, I'm not paid enough to deal with this. Like, he goes or I go. And then the bouncer is straight off because they want to get their money's worth. So the bouncer is straight off and gets them out. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Right. So I want to talk about that after our music break, which is oh. the kind of downside when we don't get that um, tipping point right and it can tip over into damaging us. But before I do, Rosie, what Stephen was just saying about the darkness um, of some of our humour and laughter as medicine. Do you think we as a community have sometimes relied on humour to get us through tough times? And that can sometimes be gallows humour or things, you know, to bind us together. Well, I mean, that's really what I explore in my podcast, The Breakup Monologues, is that the old the old adage that tragedy plus time equals comedy. And I think there's really something in that because the darkest experiences are often the most dramatic and extreme and the ones where there's a real story attached and we do often find dark humor in those times of loss and grief and interestingly it was actually you know on a more serious note when I started comedy it was when I gave up music after my mum had died and I'd lost my my house in a fire and I ended up having a breakup as well so (laughs) I'd gone through all of this loss and I think my music my songs were sort of too emotional and too raw and it was hard to do that so I, I was looking for some kind of escape and levity and comedy did provide that but I think you're right we, we find humor in dark stuff but sometimes there's a line but I think I think queer people are very good at finding that because we are often quite sensitive people who've done a lot of thinking about ourselves and a lot of reflection about our identities. 
we have got several listener comments that I would like to read out. A few of them. Gavin on Instagram says, yes, I think humour does help. Growing up with the likes of Kenneth Williams and Charles Hawtrey in the Carry On films and also Frankie Howard, but jumping forward to remember Julian Clary blazing a trail on Saturday Live on Channel 4. And we have the wonderful Graham Norton, Tom Allen. Jonathan on Twitter says, humour is often used to make homosexuality palatable and unthreatening. It's time we stopped making ourselves a punchline. So Stephen, our guest Stephen Bailey hinted at this before. I want to pick up on it in a minute. Until then, somebody called Stephen on Facebook says, the people with no sense of humour or ability to make anyone laugh are the ones who will complain. Spite, disguised as defence, they use their newfound walk powers to create their own platform for attention and finally William on Instagram says growing up in the 90s under section 28 the only representation I saw in the media of gay people was clowns to be ridiculed and despised or sinister predators to be feared this on top of the AIDS public information ads told me that I was absurd at best a potential threat to society at worst disgusting in any sense I had to nod in silent agreement with my family when they said how revolting Julian Clary was, all the while thinking he's so funny and beautiful. One of the rare examples of strong positive representation in comedy from that time. Tim MacArthur, you are roughly the same age as me, I imagine. <laughs> we grew up with gay figures being laughed at, being mm. ridiculed, the figures of fun, whether it's John Inman, Julian Clary. What is your take on this? Obviously, that's using humour, but it's not using it as a weapon to provoke social change. Um, Stephen has talked about his awareness of humour as activism. How do you feel when you look back on those comic camp comics from the past? Well, I, I thought the the guy, the last comment, the um, from on the Instagram guy, that comment I thought was spot on. Actually, what he said because there was no positive really. Role, well, there were. Julian Clay was amazing because I remember going to see him at the Aldrich Theatre when I was about 16 in 1989 or something and just being blown away by him. But again, it was all about the media. There was no sort of being gay was... There weren't... The characters weren't, even in the in sitcoms and movies, they were all laughed at, they were ridiculed. And I think that is such an important thing. And I think that's where now, you know, we are... It's changed. Our our comedians are a, a now a, hopefully a, a great role model for those new gay queer people who were 13 and 14 and just realizing who they are so i i agree completely with that 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 last guy's comments it was spot on i didn't feel positive about being gay and i felt you know gay were pedophiles or oh yeah do you know what i mean all of that but there was yeah disease carriers, disease and also the aids you know I that, know, that dreadful know. campaign oh i know we had was... section 28 then there was that you know i was scared to have sex Oh, so was I. I was terrified. But what do you think? So I can remember, actually, so Stephen was talking about, and I'm going to come back to him now, talking about that line that you cross. I can remember making, being so, I mean, obviously I'm not a comedian, but I can remember in life doing anything to get people to laugh. Absolutely. Because I thought that was the only way for them to like me, that Absolutely. I was happy to put myself up as a figure of fun to be laughed at. Absolutely, because that's what was being projected on, on the yeah. TV yeah. to us, to how to behave. Sometimes, Go on, Stephen. Find, sorry, don't you find sometimes, like, um, if you laugh at yourself first, there's a power in that. That's what I used to think, is be like, well, I'll get the first laugh about me, and then yeah, yeah, there's not much more you can do. Absolutely, but what do you think, Stephen? You're younger than us, but when you look back at your John Inmans and you got Larry Graysons and see that um, people were laughing at them, 
you know, I talked about putting myself up as a figure of fun in my life, but when that's done on a big screen or a small screen or a stage, there's a danger here, isn't there? It can do damage to us. Yeah, I think there is. And I think that's what I was saying earlier about, like, we. I, I find it now so not difficult to tread, but I'm just more aware of what I'm saying and what I'm laughing at and what's kind of like, you know, like I say, if some if someone used to do like a homophobic slur to me a couple of years ago, I would have dealt with them like I would have dealt with any heckler that's like, your mum, you know, like I would have dealt with them in a similar way. Whereas now I don't give them that space and that airtime. And most of the time I try and get them kicked out. And by the way, I'm talking about a few examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It can sound like it's happening all the time, and it certainly isn't. But at the same time, you know, when we have, and I'm like, I'm sure Rosie will tell you, is like when we do our our long shows or our tour shows or our Edinburgh shows, there's a lot more time to give stats and figures for that. And whenever I give the stats and figures, you know, I feel like that's when it really hits people and the humour hits harder. You know, when you're doing 20-minute club set on a weekend, you don't really have time. Um but when you have these shows where people have come to see you, it's like, you know, a big thing for me is being like, just because you're a straight person who watches RuPaul's Drag Race does not mean you're an ally. There's a lot more to do, do you know? And <laughs> Absolutely. Like, like, it's ridiculous that you even have to state that, but it's like, just because you like a drag queen does not mean you're supporting <laughs> our community. Like, you actually need to, you know, I've been, I, this only happened to me, and I'm going to say, I don't know if I've just lived in airy fairyland, for years but because we did grow up poor I feel like that's what my main focus on so I never felt like I had any hardship as a gay person I'm obviously not saying anyone else doesn't I'm just saying I didn't realize it from that point of view I just felt like the financial struggle really affected my life more than that so I always feel like oh I've just swam through this gay thing very easily but it was a couple of years ago um 2019 where I was like walking through central London hand in hand with my boyfriend and we got like a lot of grief on this on one walk we got three verbal like things heard at us and I'd never experienced that before like I don't as where it's just where I've not been on a stage or anything where it's just been in life and honestly it blew my mind that it still happens that people are still using these words it wasn't old people, it was young people. Well, and can I just say, Stephen, that when I was growing up, as I'm sure Tim will say, a lot of the insults in the playground were mimicking your Larry Grayson's Absolutely. and your John Inman's yeah. and um, Duncan Norvell with Chase Me. He wasn't even gay. So, um, so Rosie, when you look back, I know you were growing up as a lesbian rather than a gay man at the time, but when you look back at those comedians, I mean, we were talking about the damage they did, but also, like, it's a bit problematic because, from you know, they were also well-loved weren't they? I mean, I know that, you know, so John Inman, a lot of straight people would love his character on Are You Being Served, even though he was a figure of fun. What's your take on those people? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because last time I was on the show in the studio with you, myself and Stephen K. Amos were talking about a very similar topic to this. We were talking about how it's a sign that society has evolved. Our attitudes have evolved and we now would 
you know, have queer characters in a, in a very, very different kind of a way. And we would talk about these stereotypes in a very, very different way. But I think we have to not be fearful of exploring stereotypes. They do exist for reasons. You know, I've often joked about lesbian stereotypes and having millions of cats and, you know, cycling through our relationships really quickly and, and being really serially monogamous and all these kind of habits that do exist within lesbian society and the community. So it would be silly to you know feel that i can't say those things because i'm yeah. somehow enhancing stereotypes it's interesting to unpack where those behaviors where those stereotypes come from because often it is to do with with prejudice and discrimination perhaps lesbians are getting divorced at a really high rate because we're trying to fit into patriarchal heteronormative structures that don't suit us very well so you know, there's often an interesting political subtext to the stereotypes that exist. So it's still important to highlight them. But I don't think we need to lampoon them in quite the same way than, than we did. And, I, you know, fortunately, our culture and our, you know, the art that we create now is a little bit different, I think, in the way we represent gay characters. And that was the way mm. it used to happen. And... um. Tim, thinking of these stereotypes, I mean, the, the difficult thing for me, these stereotypical performers or these, these comedians who use stereotypes and built them up, the difficult thing for me is that they were, although their sexuality was obvious, they were never out. They always hid it yeah. as if it was something to be ashamed of. Not Julian Clary. I'm talking about the ones beforehand. Yeah, I, 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 in a way, I feel that at that period, I feel it was like we were laughing. We were told to laugh at them, not laugh with them. Yeah if that makes sense to have that yeah i just yeah and and i think back you know like and especially with my grandparents you know especially with like john inman she'd go like well he's one of them isn't he and it was that so and, and i was like what's one what's one of them you know but they were still on primetime television and i think it was it we weren't you know gay men were not seen in a in a positive light they were to be ridiculed um I want to ask Stephen something in a minute, but actually it just occurred to me, Rosie, can I just come back to you for a minute? Is there a similar phenomenon in the history of lesbian comedy? Were there any kind of butch dykes who set themselves up as figures of fun along the lines of John Inman and um, Larry Grayson? And... Yeah, I mean, really, the, the thing is, the at the equivalent time, there was just a huge invisibility in terms of lesbian culture lesbian celebrities lesbian famous people the only lesbian i knew was martina navratilova so you know it was just this this wonderful athlete um you know this tennis player and i thought well i can't be a lesbian i'm not good enough at tennis because um, <laughs> <laughs> i just thought all lesbians played tennis and were good at yeah. tennis you know that that's what i thought so there really was just an invisibility and it's the whole kind of queen victoria thing isn't it that lesbians don't exist um you know how they possibly exist um so i don't think there was the same visibility but also maybe there weren't the, quite the same harmful stereotypes i mean really when i'm thinking about the history of kind of lesbian comedy although the you know if you really go back there are sort of really interesting kind of drag acts and so on but but really you think talking about sort of ellen coming out and the huge backlash mm. she had you're really sort of looking at, at that being a, a, a bit of a you know, a starting point for, for talking about lesbians in comedy. Now, you know, there are so many, actually. Um, right, I want to focus, we need to wrap up soon, so I want to focus on the positive. I want to talk about our special relationship with humour, why we're just funnier 
than straight cis people. Stephen, what's your take um, to my provocative statement? What's your take on it? Do you think some people say that because we've operated for a lot of our lives slightly outside mainstream societies, outsiders on the fringes, this means we're ideally placed to come up with observational humour? Do you think? Yeah, maybe. Like, we've always been on the outside looking in. I just think... I, well, I, I assume. I just, I don't know. I just always feel like we don't take ourselves that seriously. Is that a good thing, though, or would you think it there's might times... might be a problem, yeah. which would be a problem. But at the same time, it's like, again, you could flip that the other side and be like, oh, my God, do you ever just, like, stop taking yourself so seriously? Like, yeah, uh, there's both like, extremes oh my, like, actually at the moment, aren't they? If you look on social media, people taking everything seriously and lashing out at the slightest thing. But then we're talking about gay men who took ourselves so the opposite of seriously that we would just set ourselves up as figures of fun. You've got both yeah, extremes. I I think historically lesbians have taken themselves quite seriously. We've been been a bit different. So we've had to lighten up and loosen up and have some fun. But I think your point about outsiders is really, really bang on because I have looked in my work at how we've had more creative solutions to the conundrums of relationships and fidelity and marriage and family and children and community and all of those things. And I think being an outsider makes you find creative solutions for things. So your mind works in a creative way already. So I think that makes us creative when we're thinking of stories to tell or jokes to tell. I think I think that works as well. Stephen is nodding. Come on, tell us why are we funnier than straight cis people? <laughs> I don't know why we are. We just we're born this way, babe. Like I don't actually know. I was just trying to think about it while Rosie was speaking. I was like, why are we like everyone I have such like that guttural like laugh with where you like are dying? It's always my gaze. Yeah. Um And I really, honest to God, do not know why it is. But I mean, because I know I don't know about how Rosie goes about it, but when I'm coming up with material, I just think, oh, my God, that really cracked me up. And I'll take it to the stage and I'll find out the hard way if it's too much or not, you know. Um, All right. Absolutely. Um, What I want to ask you is, as we're running out of time, tell us when we can see you on stage. Where are you next going to be performing and how can we find out? Um, I don't know off the top of my head. If you go to stephenbaileycomedy.co.uk, I'm doing some, I'm opening for Catherine Ryan on tour. So if you see her, I'll probably be there. Fantastic, Stephen. Thank you for joining us. Way funnier. Way funnier than straight people. Yeah, we are. And I can't wait for all the tweets I'm going to get telling me how wrong and offensive we are, I am. <laughs> I tell you what, do you know what though? Last time I did a radio show, everyone was tweeting being like, that woman was hilarious. Like, <laughs> so if they come after me, I'm just going to send them Rosie's way. <laughs> Brilliant. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride. Pride. Pride.
I'm Matt Kane. This is my Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride, the last one. So that's the subject of our final little discussion after nearly 15 glorious weeks. This current run of Virgin Radio Pride has to come to its scheduled end. Part of the station's aim has been to promote the spirit of Pride when many physical Pride events weren't able to take place. So now that it is ending, how can we keep that spirit going? So, Tim, one of our key aims has been to bring together all the different sections of our community. Um, that can be quite difficult in real life, can't it? Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, yeah, absolutely, to, to get a real balance. And so everyone has a voice and everyone feels represented. But How do we... Do, I mean, you know, you've got experience of this, as we discussed earlier at Above the Stag. How do we... Can you give any tips to people just wanting to do that in lived experience, you know? I think it's about being open and about just exploring life and exploring the different and and maybe as you know as a as a gay man maybe I should go and see more trans events or I should just yeah. open myself up to that, to that sort of things and not just play safe with what I know and get out there and and just explore and I think you know we we are coming together as a, a queer community and I think that is going to grow and that's what I love about doing above the stag you know in the cabaret lounge because it's even though I'm program, or programming all these different events they are catered for each element of the community but I still want other people from the community to come yeah. and support and feel safe in a queer space. And Rosie, what do you think? So, as I said earlier, one of the themes that's come up more than any other on this show, infighting within the community. What can we do moving forward, all of us, to combat this? Yeah, I, well, I think it is difficult, as Tim says. But I think one of the slight silver linings, if if you like, of the whole lockdown situation was that people did start to think about their immediate local community. And, you know, my neighbours were all looking out for one another and, you know, helping older people or people who were ill or disabled and needed to get shopping. And so I think this idea of community has been in the ether a bit more in the last 18 months or so. And so you know, I've kind of talked to some of some of our straight allies in the local neighbourhood, and we've met, you know, other gay people and queer people within the within the sort of local neighbourhood as well. So, I think there is something that that we can hold on to. That aside from all the horrible stuff that has been going on, um, you know, that it did make us sort of think about looking out for one another through tough times. And I think maybe we hold on to that energy mm. and, and take that forward within our community. Tim is nodding. Tim, I want to put something else to you. Um, one of our um, key aims when we started this station was to engage, entertain, enlighten. Do you think in queer culture that mix has always been right? Or do you think there's sometimes been too much focus on the entertain, not enough on the engage and enlighten. Do you know what I mean? Is have we always had that balance right? Um, I I don't know really. I think I think we. I I think we're getting better. I think, I think it, we are. I think we're getting better. If to be honest, I think again, I think it comes back from you know maybe fear of not knowing or understanding. Um, you know, many years ago, I was working with Kelly Maloney who you know, was the famous boxer. Yeah. And I, I, she introduced me to a world that I'd never been in before. And it was absolutely fascinating and also really liberating. And it just made me understand a lot more about the trans community and that not to be scared. 
yeah. mean that they they like the pe- we, we're all the same we're all the same we all have the same emotions we all have the same needs we all have the same desires it doesn't matter who we are we just have to just live and support each other I can see, by the way, Rosie is smiling, that you agree with this. What What about, so you've done our show twice. You're one of the few people who've done it twice. Ooh. And one of our <laughs> key aims was to bring intelligent discussion and reflection into the mix. Do you think sometimes, we talked about celebrity before, you know, in gay media, queer media and at Pride events. Do you think sometimes LGBTQ plus culture can dumb things down and shy away from intelligence? Sometimes, but I've always used my comedy shows as a vehicle for combining entertainment and funny stories with thought-provoking science and psychology and about how we work and how we connect and how we form friendships and relationships and romantic connections and a sense of family and community. So I've always tried to combine entertainment with thoughtfulness and reflection. Mm. So I think it's it's certainly something that's possible to do. And I think you've done a great job as well, Matt. Oh, thank you. And Tim, you know, Rosie talking about self-reflection, you know, and she also talked about learning the value of community from the pandemic, or at least having that strengthened in some people's minds. Do you think this idea of self-reflection is something else that we might have learned from the pandemic the importance of it and it might be something else that we carry forward absolutely i think everybody you know in those long days you know the first lockdown i think everyone was like oh i'm gonna bake some banana bread you know i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do that quiz every week i think that the first lockdown i think it felt like everybody naturally just wanted maybe to stop well i think the second lockdown i've spoken to a lot of people people did become much more reflective because it was a darker time it felt a darker time you're talking about um actually the third the oh, second the thir- one yeah no, the second the, one um, didn't really um, count did the, it no the, the second winter one, one the november one that was just a breeze yeah. do you know what i mean but the like, winter the, one the winter the one the, the january one and Oof. i think it really i remember having more deep serious conversations with various people in my life from you know my straight allies to people in the queer community and everyone was just really struggling and i think people did reflect and people made sort of uh not promises but they said next time i'm going to behave in this way or i'm going to look out for that person i won't react to that situation i actually don't want to live in london anymore i want to go and live by the seaside i actually don't want to be with that partner do i mean i think it's been a much more of a reflective time and i think that's a that's a good thing because i think in life we 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 only get one chance and we've got to make the most of our lives. That's what we have to do now. Oh, and that really is something we've learned from the pandemic. We've only got one chance, the importance of community and the importance of self-reflection. I think that's a good point to wrap up for this week. Thanks very much to my guests, Tim MacArthur, Rosie Wilby, Darren Stiles and Stephen Bailey. And thanks very much to you, the listener, for joining us on the Sunday Rose for our final show here on Virgin Radio Pride. If you want to catch up on any of the previous episodes, you can do that by searching for Virgin Radio Pridecast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks to all the production team, Polly Marquis, Felix Rakow, Steve Softly, plus Mike Cass, Stuart Davis and Duncan Levin at Virgin Radio UK. If you want to, do still feel free to drop us a line if you've enjoyed the show 
or if you just want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Kane Writer or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. We have loved having you with us on this fabulous queer journey and we will hopefully see you again soon.